If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Hello and welcome to episode 118. In this episode, I talked to Mike Gunn, a stand-up comedian who has been doing the club circuit for many years. He's worked with Michael McIntyre and Lee Mack on nationwide tours. And before that, he uh, was addicted to heroin. We'll talk about that in the interview. But in the meantime, it's well into lockdown now. Maybe there's it's becoming the norm, the new norm. And at times it just feels a little bit weird. At times, just every now and then, I wake up and I think to myself, is this really happening? Is most of the world in lockdown? Is this real? Is this science fiction? Am I just imagining this? It's the weirdest thing ever. And I mean, it makes you start thinking how crazy the world is, you know, when the leader of the free world, that would be Mr. Donald Trump, president, is quite insane, you know, quite insane. And we're all in this lockdown. You kind of think, how crazy is the world? But I mean, mad, mad things have happened in the world, uh, much madder than this, like World War Two. <laughs> so uh, these things do happen but it's just when you're in the midst of something you kind of go mm, this is the new norm just staying in the house all day and trying to find some way of making a living without uh, being near people there's lots of people I've been talking to that I haven't seen face to face for ages we talk on the phone we talk on zoom it's certainly, certainly weird when you think about it. Maybe I'm influenced by the fact that I've been watching Westworld, the series, uh, in the last week or two. And if you haven't seen Westworld, so it's like, a, uh, it's a place where humans go to uh, interact with these robots who are, look, and totally real. And, uh, and then some of those robots who look totally real start realizing that they're not real and uh gaining consciousness just like oh here we go my cat's gonna start coughing she does this all the time she's uh she knows i need silence like for example if i'm doing an audition for which i was doing yesterday i have to record auditions this is what you do now mostly self-tape auditions and quite often i have to do quite a few of them and so i to a few takes till I feel I'm getting it right. And then I get one right. And then just at the end of it, she just walks by me and goes, meow. 
And I'm like, what the feck? Like she seems to actually know I'm doing auditions now. So she start walking around going, meow, and just screwing it up. And now I'm doing this bit. She starts doing her stupid cough, which she does because she licks her tummy all day and and is full of hairballs. And so then she has to do this. <coughs> Anyway, that's uh, ruined my train of thought. So, yeah, so uh, this is it. This is Mike gone. A, a really interesting chat. Um, and it's the first one I've done over Zoom. Um, uh, so the recording is not as amazing as, as probably ones I've done in the studio. But it's it until we can get back into the studio, uh, this is the way. I think it's good. Though. Yeah. It's good. It is good. Mike gone. Where did you grow up? Where are you from? Um, I was born, strangely, in uh, in Barnet in North London, which is kind of almost where I'm back to. After getting divorced and bloody bloody blah, I'm kind of back to where I originally started. Yeah. Yeah. Mentally, I- physically, and financially. <laughs> <laughs> we have yeah. a lot. In, we have a lot in common. <laughs> it's a great uh it's a great job for uh for destroying your relationship yeah i don't know i'm sure i would have done it anyway but um uh, when you were in school then were you in were you doing any kind of drama you know kids plays or... oh god no no i hated all that no no i hated school i hated drama i was very shy i did one school play which i was forced to do um which i hated which was the Three Musketeers and or something like that. My only line was, Hark, I hear footsteps. I accidentally said, Hark, I hear footprints. <laughs> <laughs> we got a big laugh. Got a laugh. Uh, <laughs> I was mortified at the time, but maybe, maybe that was the start of my uh, craving for big laughs from audiences. Right. Well, you, yeah. you had stage fright, I guess. Oh God, I had everything right. I was, you know, I didn't used to like going out for a pint of milk, let alone appearing on stage. Right. No, no, I was really very shy, uh, insecure child in, in later years. Um, that, uh, developed into a full blown drug addiction. So, uh, did you finish school? Well, sort of. I didn't, uh, by the time I got to the point of exams and all that sort of the final year, I was already much more interested in sex and drugs and rock and roll than school. And uh, I I didn't do any work and I pretty much failed all my exams. I'm totally unqualified <laughs> <laughs> for everything. <laughs> Hence, uh, that's why I'm a stand up comedian. Yeah, same here. <laughs> it's the only job you can do with a long history of drug abuse and criminal record and no qualifications. Perfect. Stand up comedy. <laughs> so would you would you reckon that it was your shyness that led you to drinking or whatever to try to overcome that? I think yeah, just general just general uncomfortableness with life. 
led me to um, getting out of my mind to cope with it. You know, mm. I think like, I, I don't think it's unusual, but uh, you know, teenage boys drink to get confidence with women and what have you. I just took it too far. And like, when did it start? When, when did you have your first drink? I presume it was a drink was the first thing you did, something else. People always say that, you know, that, you know, it's a gateway and all that. I think my first drugs were probably something like Tipex, sniffing Tipex and Lady Square shoe conditioner, all those kind of uh, chemicals that you can sniff. But, um, yeah, stealing Dubonnet from my parents' drinks cabinet, yeah, I think was uh, the first time I got really drunk. And I, I've made a little series of videos about all that, actually, uh, which is up on a Kofi page. It is Kofi, K-O-F-I forward slash Mike Gunn. And so uh, did you, uh, were well, you drank and then, or whatever, was it on your own or with people? Um, well, it started off with people. Well, I think it started off on my own, stealing my uh, parents' alcohol from the sideboard drinks cabinet, which they used to have in those days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With the music centre on it. Do you remember that? <laughs> three, in, three in one stereo. That's right, yeah. It was, like, enormous. It took up the whole wall. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And in that was also a drinks cabinet. But then, you know, I went out, you know, and uh, I was a sort of normal teenager. I went out and I gradually got into you know smoking dope and taking speed and you know like a lot of teenagers do in fact strangely i went to uh i saw there was a sort of um i'm a member of this weird group that um on facebook which kind of posts pictures from the town you lived in as a child and it was camberley in surrey and uh they had the blackbush uh music festival do you remember that with Bob Dylan headlined? Oh and, no! Uh, wow. Yeah, well, anyway, it was a huge, it was a huge big deal in my area, and uh, I started doing taking drugs there. I think uh, watching Bob Dylan. Well, <laughs> Why not? Why not? A bad way. Yeah. And that uh, that was what that was smoking dope or oh I. If you watch my videos, you'll see. I got involved in everything, really. Yeah. And yeah. did you do uh, psychedelic, like, mush, uh, magic? Oh, mushroom, LSD? yeah, LSD, a lot of LSD. Yeah. yeah. Right. I wouldn't recommend it. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I've taken it the odd time when I was younger, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, so, you're, uh, what, when then you started work, I presume you were working and all this. What kind of jobs were you doing? Um, I, I, I wasn't very suited to working. I did some stuff. I did some delivery driving and, uh, I did, tried sales for a while. I was awful at that. And, um, I did, my major job was photocopy repairman. I did that for a long time. And, um, I was also totally unsuited, but, um, it's kind of a good job because you're out on your own, driving around, no one's watching over you. And, uh, you know, you just turn up at offices and pretend you know how to repair the photocopier. And <laughs> I did that for quite a while. And I, I read that you were, you worked in a 
gherkin factory? I did, yeah. I, I, when I was about, oh, I don't know, 16, I travelled all around Europe, backpacked around Europe, did yeah. loads of stuff like uh, working in people gherkin factories and slaughter, slaughtering chickens. And I worked on a kibbutz in Israel. And, yeah. uh, you know, normal finding yourself gap gear. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, it was good. It was good fun. Right, yeah. I ended up in Morocco, of course. Um, yeah, just sat around in Morocco smoking a lot of dope for some time. Months, months on end. <laughs> right. Yeah. At what point did you think, oh, I've got a, I've got a problem here? Oh, God, I knew I had a problem. Um, pretty early on. Um, I think in a lot of ways, um, alcoholism is much more dangerous than addiction because when you drink it's quite hard because everyone drinks and you know some people drink a lot and it just seems quite normal it's quite difficult to see that you've got a problem but once you start uh injecting heroin <laughs> do you know what I mean it's fairly obvious that you've got a problem oh i did i i knew you'd done heroin i didn't know you'd injected it so oh god i was a i was a full-blown heroin addict for 10 years really and uh, oh yeah how long did it take you to start injecting? Did did you start start by smoking it? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But very quickly, um, I realised that it's uh, much more effective if you inject it. Also, um, you know, it seemed like the cool thing to do. I was a teenager. I didn't know. I knew that rock stars did it, and uh, you know, they seemed pretty cool. So it was just one of those things I always wanted to do. Yeah, I know. I'm a very screwed up child. <laughs> wow. I actually saw there's a, a documentary about the band ZZ Top on Netflix. And the, yeah. their, their drummer was a heroin addict. And uh, he said uh, he injected it because it was financially yeah. better. He said uh, Eric Clapton could afford to smoke it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he could. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's way more efficient, of course. Of course it is, yeah. Right, yeah. And a far, you know, a much better hit, rush, everything, everything's much better. But, um, you know, it's a cheaper way of doing it, basically. Right. Yeah. Um, so you were actually injecting heroin from a young age, from a teenager? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, how did you make several attempts to stop or how did that come? Oh, God, yeah. I, I spent about a year enjoying it. And then about the next 10 years trying to stop. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's not an easy thing to do. No. Stopping. It's dead easy to start. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, were you trying to stop on your own or were you going to? Oh, I did all sorts of things. Um, yeah, I, I had various methods of stopping. Um, one of them was, uh, leaving my environment so going to holland was one of my methods just wasn't a great plan now i come to think of it <laughs> going to holland to stop holland. taking drugs yeah. yeah yeah uh i tried that i tried all sorts of uh ways and um i also had a brilliant plan once that i would um save up enough sleeping pills okay and uh this was my plan uh and just take 
just take sleeping pills, okay, fall asleep, and then when I woke up, I'd take some more. And um, the plan was... Oh, sleep withdrawal. Yeah, I'd sleep through the withdrawal. So the plan was to sleep for about four days and then wake up cured. Uh, <laughs> but... <laughs> The problem is that if you are in withdrawal, you need an awful lot of drugs to knock you out. Uh, and uh, what what re- what actually happens is you kind of go into a kind of blackout situation where you don't know what's going on, and uh, you go out and score anyway. <laughs> are you serious? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah not really consciously. Yeah, not really consciously. Oh People would turn up the next day and go, "Where's my money?" And I go, "What are you talking about?" You came round last night and scored this and passed out. I go, what are you on about? I've been in bed. <laughs> wow. No, no, you haven't. Wow. So that didn't work. I tried lots of ways, lots yeah. of ways. Uh, like I say, I'm making a whole series of videos about it. Yeah, yeah. And not, how- not, not for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> like it sounds. Yeah, actually, it sounds yeah. interesting. It's obviously awful. This withdrawal. I, I mean, I can't imagine what it's like. Well, it's always um, it's always overdone in movies. Yeah. It's always you know in withdrawals. Although Train Spotting is a very accurate movie, um, it's not the the physical withdrawal is not really the worst thing. Uh, it's like uh, flu or COVID nineteen. Uh, <laughs> it's it, it's quite bad. The the big problem with it is. Um, the psychological aspect of it because you know when you're really really ill and you're just desperate for it to be over <clears throat> well when you know that it can be over in two seconds that's a big problem uh and the other big problem is <clears throat> getting your head around the fact that you're never going to do this again so that is a big problem <clears throat> with giving up anything Mm-hmm. If you give up anything, you kind of start to think, oh, God, life's not worth living without this. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the point? And uh, so that, that it's the psychological problems that are really, I mean, don't get me wrong, withdrawal's no fun, but that isn't the biggest issue. I mean, you could actually get off and, and then go back on in a few weeks or months or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Normally the next day, to be honest. <laughs> and... How did you eventually then get clean from heroin? Um, I ended up in a very bad physical state. I went to psychiatric hospital and from there I went on to rehab and I did, you know, proper rehab, you know, back in the days when rehab wasn't cool. Well, you know, when, when, yeah. you know, not in the days when celebrities popped in for the weekend and then came out forgiven with their new, new career. No, yeah. No. Back in those days, you uh, you you lied about it and said you were in prison. <laughs> it was better to say you were in prison. Yes, it definitely was. Yeah. Wow. But I did that kind of you know twelve step rehab thing, and then uh, and then I came out and tried to fit into the world, and uh, which is difficult. You know, when you when you when you've been a heroin addict for ten years, it's difficult to go and work in a bank. Um, apart from the fact that they didn't want you. Um, so that, that's how I ended up doing stand-up comedy. And what age were you then? Oh, God, about... I didn't start stand-up till I was about 34. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. 
and it was yeah it takes a long time it takes a long time to get over a long addiction yeah to the point where you're ready to do something else with your life right yeah yeah so I went in there came out tried various jobs realised I felt like an alien in most business situations and um then I looked around for something else to do. Basically, I'd given up. Uh, I'd got clean, you know, I, and I'd got a job photocopy repairing and uh, I had a little flat and blah, blah, blah. And I was so miserable. And I just one day thought, this isn't it. This isn't why I went through all that. I didn't go through all that to do this nine to five crappy job that I don't like with people I don't identify with. Um and so I looked around for something else to do. Also, I was still painfully shy and insecure. And stand-up comedy, being a person of extremes that I am, I thought, if you're really shy and insecure, why not try stand-up comedy? <laughs> <laughs> because if you could do that just once, then it would really help with shyness and insecurity. And so I did one of those courses, you know. Uh, I think it was... Uh, it was at Jackson's Lane Community Centre in North London. And it was like on a Wednesday night for two hours. And it was taught by a different teacher each week. Mm-hmm. Andy Parsons is one of the teachers. Yeah. Dave Thompson is one of the teachers. Charmaine Hughes, Nick Wilty, oh, wow. Rob Hitch, Rob Hitchmo, every week a different teacher. And I was so unsuited for stand-up comedy in every way that... um so terrified of the whole experience that it was funny, basically, because I was so awkward and uncomfortable <laughs> that uh, yeah. that I, it kind of worked. And I've done it ever since, bizarrely. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I presume you weren't, like, tackling addiction or drugs in your stand-up when you started? I, tr- I tried to, but... Uh, Early on, I tried to talk about it, but um, I wasn't good enough, basically. And also, um, it's a very difficult subject to broach with a, you know, drunk Saturday night crowd. They don't want to hear about not drinking. Do you know what I mean? I remember once saying I hadn't drunk for years and, you know, just got booed. and It's less, (laughs) very difficult. Even now, I find that I don't really talk about it. I did do a whole show about it, but that was years ago. And I don't really talk about it in my stand-up, no. Right. In this country, we're a bit weird when it comes to talking about therapy or... In America, they love it. They love a bit of therapy in America. But in this country, we're going, we don't want to hear about that. Tell us an object. Oh, yeah. Well, I would say in the clubs, but you not think the Edinburgh Fringe Festival has become... Oh, yeah, yeah. That's fine. But I'm talking about clubs, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, did the whole... Sh- I did a show about it at Edinburgh, yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, but uh, at first, were you... Were you? Did you feel that you were... Like I was when I started in stand-up. I wasn't really being myself. Like it was too... It was, there was some kind of a, you know... A front I was putting up when I was doing stand-up. Yes, I did very, uh, I was very deadpan and, uh, and still and did kind of dark one-liners. Too dark for some people. (laughs) 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 And, um, I did jokes like I can remember this, this one that failed dismally. Um, 
I was very upset when my father died uh, because I had to find somebody else to be a disappointment to. <laughs> That's amazing. That <laughs> no, never worked. It never worked. It never worked. <laughs> never worked. It's, I, every so often, I drag that joke out because comics like you always go, oh, that's a great joke, but it doesn't work, I can assure you. It's too real. Every so often, I drag that joke out and say it, and it gets silence. I find that hard to believe. I really <laughs> no, believe. I promise you, it doesn't work. <laughs> I even did that um, jokes with Mark Simmons podcast where they where you sort of go through jokes that don't work and try and fix them. And uh, we couldn't fix it. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, I did that for a while. And then I graduated into maybe even darker stuff. I I did an act. uh, I did a sort of character act as a funeral director. Yeah. So just as a funeral director. And uh, I did your show in that show in Ireland. uh, RTE. Oh, RTE. Yeah, I think. I did that as the funeral director, that TV yeah. show. It was shot in the laughter lounge, I think. That's right, yeah. So I did loads of jokes about death from the deadpan jokes about death dressed as a funeral director. I know, it sounds fun. No, it was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. You remember it, do you? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I did a weekend with you in Bristol as well, uh, John Bruce, So. Oh, the good old days, yeah. Yeah. Well, that was actually a nice John Lewis. Bristol. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The only there were a lot of nice there were a lot of nice ones. I know it gets a bad rep, but uh, I did it for years, and uh, you know I did well. That particular act got me booked lots of places quite early on because no one knew who I was. But they go, oh, you know, the funeral director bloke, just something for people to latch on to. Um, and so I got I even got booked at the store doing that act, and then after a few years of doing it. I couldn't think of any more jokes about death. (laughs) (laughs) I gradually sort of phased out of it, uh, which was tricky. Uh, And when did you uh, start talking about... So you did an Edinburgh show about your addiction. When did you do that? Was that after you did the funeral director card? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. That was... uh, Oh, I can't remember the year. Two thousand and. Six, maybe something like that. Oh, okay. I don't enjoy it. I've got to say. Right. Okay. It's I... tough when you uh, because it revolves around late night drinking and all that sort of. You know, I feel a bit like you know, seeing as I now don't drink yeah. or take any drugs, I find it a bit a bit tedious, to be honest. Right. Yeah. It might have changed. It may, yeah, it may well have. Yeah, I haven't been for years, and uh, I've not, you know, I've most, I've mostly been a club comic, right? Yeah. So, and in the days of jonglers, of course, you could be a club comic and uh, earn a good living and and work all the time. Yeah, not so anymore. How do you feel about that kind of attitude that people, certainly people who do the Edinburgh Fringe, not all, but a lot, yeah. Look- Look down on the fact that you're a club comic. It's like, oh, you're just telling jokes. Yeah. Um, well, I think it's a bit ridiculous, really. Um, it's just a different genre, isn't it? You know, it's like saying, um, you know, you, comedy's rubbish. You know, you only like drama, you know. Yeah. They're just different things, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, I watched that. What's her name? Hannah Gadsby. Yeah. 
yeah. her, her show. I watched it and um, people were raving about it. And um, I thought it was a great show. I thought it was a really, really great piece of almost drama, a performance piece, but it, w- it wasn't stand-up comedy. It wasn't was it? stand-up comedy, yeah. No, it, 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 it was great, but, you know, it would certainly die at the comedy store. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they're different things. I'm not. I, I, I thought it was really good. Yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah, I found some of I, I I found some of what she said as well ridiculous. But uh, I um, found it ridiculous that she would moan about she was beaten up by some guy because she chatted up his girlfriend. I go well, like that would happen any bloke. Yeah, yeah. Why? Why is that such a? Yeah. Well, welcome <laughs> to the real world. A big team. Yeah. Uh, so uh, where was it? Where was it? Going? So with the Edinburgh show, did you were, 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 did you feel nervous about uh, doing a whole show about your addiction and about? Yes, it, it's very. It's a very different thing doing a very personal show about yourself because. When you do just jokes, if people don't like your jokes, they don't like your jokes. Do you know what I mean? But if people don't like your very personal show, it means they don't like you. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I once had the most awful heckle, which destroyed me completely, which I was in the middle of doing that show, and somebody heckled with, why are you telling us this? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and I went away and had a bit of a crisis. I thought, it's a good point. Why am I telling you this? <laughs> right. <yeah. laughs> Not sure. But that was a big success, wasn't it, that show? That was, that was. Well, it was a success, um, in, it didn't do brilliantly in Edinburgh. I sort of got three star reviews across the board and I lost the fortune, which is standard Edinburgh. Um, but it was a big success in other areas. I mean, I did that show. For all round, lots of schools. I was, uh, I did it uh, for the police a lot, for um, health workers, um, and uh, I also did it in a lot of drug rehabs, where it went down brilliantly. It was mm. the, the my best experience ever, ever, because they're my people. They knew exactly what I was talking about. I was like a god in drug rehabs, um, okay. and uh, I recently did a. Um, there's a guy who runs a show here called Sober. Sober is funny. So it's a completely sober comedy night. And I did quite a few bits from that show. Uh, and of course the people there were either, uh, recovering addicts or alcoholics or not recovering, but should be. <laughs> yeah. So I had a brilliant time. I know, I know, I know that's my audience. I know them. Trouble is it's not a big enough audience really, you know. But did you tour you, with that show? Well, I toured it in, like I say, around schools and rehabs. Right. And uh, with the police, I did some shows for the Home Office, top-ranking coppers. I did a big corporate event for all the sort of, um, you know, top police and um, people that make methadone and fisetone, all those people. And uh, I thought I was going to have a big problem um with my stance that the whole thing should be legalized and that, you know, methadone was complete con. Uh, and, um, it was a complete waste of time, the war on drugs, all that, all that, that's my point of view. I thought that they would all 
be against that. But actually, they all went, yeah, you're absolutely right. And we know it. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all top, top, top ranking coppers, home office people all went, yeah, we know that. We know. But it's not a vote winner. Can you yeah. explain to me how you feel that, uh, uh, if drugs were legalized, it would help? Because w- would you not feel that something like, like a very addictive drug, like heroin? Yeah. If it's more available, would lead to more addiction. Well, well, first off, I, if heroin was freely available from on prescription, would you become a heroin addict? Most people would. No, my only experience with, well, I did actually smoke it once, but I yeah. was so scared of becoming addicted, I wouldn't yeah. even let myself uh, enjoy yeah. it. And then the other experiences were with, like, uh, sorry, you know, when I went to it, had an operation, I was given a yes. painkiller and I went, wow, this is amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It is amazing. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. But, yeah, but have you become a, a, a no. painkiller addict? No. My my theory is that, that drugs are easy enough to get. The people that want to take them already take them. I don't think the fact that you could be able to go and get it from the chemist would make any difference. I mean, you still have to register and blah, 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 blah. I wouldn't just be handing them out willy-nilly. But the, all the major problems from drug addiction come from the fact that it's illegal. So, um, for instance, if it was, le- was legalised, immediately the whole drug cartel, all the drug cartels in the world would, would be out of business, mm-hmm. okay, because there'd be no money in it for them. Uh so the police could then stop wasting their time flying around the Caribbean and blah de blah de blah. They'd all have to stop killing each other over drug wars. All that stuff, all that stuff would be gone overnight, would yeah. freeing up huge quantities of police and resources to put into education, rehab, all that sort of stuff. Eighty percent of the prison population are there for drug related. Yeah. They'd all be sorted. They'd all be go free up all the space in the prisons, free up all the prison guards. Um, the government could make a huge amount of money by um, taxing the drugs that they're handing out on the NHS. Uh, well, it's already worked quite well in some countries. Portugal, for instance, legalised it. Have they had a massive increase in drug addiction? No, they haven't. It's gone down. Also, the whole coolness thing is taken away. What's cool about going to the chemist to get your drugs in the morning? Do you know what I mean? There's nothing uh, cool about that. Well, I'd argue that in America, there's the huge uh, drug problem with le- with legal prescri- prescription drugs. Um, there is, yeah. So, Oxycodone, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, what, what do you make of that? There's your counter-argument. <laughs> <laughs> that. I'm not saying it'd be perfect. I'm just saying um, that... We've tried prohibition for the last how many hundred years or whatever it is, and uh, and it hasn't worked, is it? We need no, to change. It hasn't worked. I mean, look at um, you know prohibition with alcohol. What 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 happened there? Spawned the mafia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it didn't work, did it? So also, the other pro- the other problem is that um, when drugs are illegal, um, dealers are incentivized to make the strongest product they can hence all this new grass and weed because they can sell it for more you know, mm. they can cut it more um, 
And also, it's more dangerous. The whole thing's unregulated, so God knows what you're buying. That would all that would all be gone. So it just seems like a a, 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 you know. um, I think it's about time to try it. I mean, the war on drugs can't be won. It can't be won. No, no, no. no. Oh, I agree with you. And there'll be a lot less uh, gangland shootings. Yeah, all that. Yeah. And okay, maybe a few more people would get addicted, but you know, at the moment. People get killed all the time. Uh, would would Tesco's be selling? <laughs> no, no, no. You'd still have to go to your doctor and say, you know, I'm addicted and I need to, a prescription, which used to happen. It used to happen. A, a girl who I used to use with had been scripted since the 60s. She got um, whatever it was she got. Um, morphine or I can't even remember but she, she had been scripted on it since the 60s and she used that and lived a relatively normal life. She had two kids and bloody blah, blah. and then in about 1980 something they decided that they were going to stop that system and after her being scripted for 20 years they suddenly went no, you can't have it anymore mm. and she committed suicide, just like that and, um, you know, I can't see that letting her continue with her, with, with, with her prescription would have been worse. Yeah. So people could just continue doing working normal nine to five jobs while well, they have. Well, yeah, some can, but even if they can't, you know, it's still better than going out and, you know, having to go round to some dodgy dealers who's armed to the teeth and, you know, right. all sorts of other shit going on, you know. And I, suppose I mean, once once you're in that criminal world, then, you know, all sorts of stuff starts happening. <laughs> I can assure you. Look at my videos. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> well, when, when you were uh, severely addicted, were you paying for it from legal Crime. Rights? No, no, no. Crime, of course. Really? You can't, you can't pay for it by legal means. Too expensive. You need, um, well, people would say how much, people often ask me that, how much a day would you spend on, spend on drugs? I would spend on drugs a day all the money I had. <laughs> I would spend on drugs as much money as I could get mm. per day. And if that was, you know, 20 pounds or if that was you know 300 pounds that's what i'd spend you know so i'm gonna ask you i don't know if it's too personal don't don't but do you think there's anything in your upbringing that (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 oh there is (laughs) okay probably um but not um you know uh not your standard child abuse um just yeah, unhappy childhood, parents divorced, um, you know. I think that there's a whole argument about whether addiction is nature or nurture. Um, and uh, I don't think anyone really knows, but I think it's probably a combination of nature, nurture and opportunity, you know. I sort of happened to fall in with a group of people that were, involved in a lot of drugs and you know i wasn't happy uh i I think lots of things contribute i don't think it's quite that simple was there any history of addiction in your family yes 
Yeah, but see, the argument, it's a very difficult argument because people say, oh, you know, if your parents are alcoholics, then you're, you're likely to be an alcoholic, which is true. But is that because it's hereditary or because you're brought up in a very dysfunctional? <laughs> yeah, you see, see what I'm saying? Probably a bit of both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so did you, so has comedy helped you in any way therapeutically? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, um, I think in a way, stand up is a substitute. It's very similar. Uh, oh, like it's get, an addiction? Sort of. You get massive highs and lows. Mm-hmm. Um, you live kind of outside of society. Um, it destroys your relationships. And <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's why so many people want to be stand-up comedians. Man. <laughs> yeah, you spend all the time driving around at night alone. Yeah, it's uh, it's very similar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's true. All this driving around on your own. And stuff. I actually love that. I do as well. I was driving. I was driving down the uh, M1. I don't know, three o'clock in the morning, some time ago. Uh, with the only ones playing on my stereo, yeah. and and I, and I and I felt really happy, and, and I and I kind of stopped, and I thought, is this normal? <laughs> <laughs> is it normal to yeah. be to, to be an older man driving around at three o'clock in the morning on his own, listening to the only ones? <laughs> is it yeah. normal for that to be a really happy experience? Yeah, I don't know. it's very odd. Like I've actually. No, but very seldom, but occasionally I've driven a little bit of a longer way home at four in the morning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Listen to more music and just... Yeah, me too. I've done that as well. Yeah. yeah. I'll just go around the block so I can hear the end of this <laughs> album. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's uh, definitely something wrong there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because it's very different to being in a band, and I mean a similar lifestyle, but being in a band is a gang of lads. There's a bit more... Yeah. I think, of course, but the, the other the other thing, and I think this is, is that um, when you're in a band or, or or some sort of, you go on stage, okay, and you do your show, and it goes fantastically well. Just say, occasionally, it goes fantastically well, and everyone cheers and applauds and goes, "Yeah, you're brilliant!" La la la, and then you just go home on your own. Mm. Nothing happens. Nothing changes, and I think that's probably why. It must be even worse for bands when, when you know when you're you two or something and millions of people are cheering and blah blah blah. You've done some huge stadium, and then you just go back to your house, you know. And I think that's why bands end up taking lots of drugs and mm. you know partying all night because you need to kind of come down from that. It's very hard to come down. I've actually yeah. noticed that that I've done a couple of uh, performances kind of on Zoom from my house and uh and even, and even when i just do that i can't sleep for yeah yeah four or five hours um it's very difficult yeah apparently uh bono's wife when he comes back from tour she makes him stay in a hotel for two weeks he's not allowed <laughs> <in the house. laughs> yeah. he doesn't want that bono coming out <laughs> seems, seems reasonable to me <laughs> i reckon he probably likes it too <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like a decompression yeah. chamber. Yeah. So how how do you feel now about like uh, 
I know you were saying the whole club scene has kind of fallen apart. There was a time when um, it's quite a while ago now, probably ten years ago now. Yeah, uh, uh, over ten years ago, perhaps that it was really booming the club scene. And yeah, for some reason, probably the financial crash, but also possibly the way stand-up has become huge on TV. Yeah. Clubs are gone. Do you, does that kind of scare you? <laughs> kinda, yeah. yeah. It doesn't scare me as much as this whole COVID thing. Because, right. you know, I don't, I'm not sure clubs are ever going to return, are they? It's hard to know. It's hard certainly, to know, yeah. Certainly not for a year or two, I'd say. No. So who yeah. knows what's going to happen. I'll, I'll be bankrupt in a year or two. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. The whole demise of jonglers and all that was, uh, yeah, it was a big, you know, we, we, we were moaning about it at the time, weren't we? Going, oh, bloody hell, this is shit. But actually we were earning loads of money, yeah. uh, and we had loads of free time and we got to perform, you know, three or four nights a week. Uh, it was actually a really good time. Mm. We just didn't realize. Well, <laughs> it was a double-edged sword. I, I mean, I, I actually just was talking to Joe Caulfield about that. And she was saying yeah, yeah. That she didn't have to do jonglers that much. So she felt... I, see, jonglers had the... The work was there, but you couldn't develop your act, could you? This is a, It was like a... a well, you could develop your club act. Could you, though? Because I, I felt once I got 20 minutes that worked at Jonglers, I found it really hard to change it. Maybe that was just me. Yeah, that's true. But I also used to do smaller clubs as well. Um, okay. And uh, I, when I first started doing Jonglers, I wasn't ready to do Jonglers. I wasn't capable of doing those rooms full of drunk people. And, um, and I learned how to do it because they foolishly kept booking me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I said, so I would say the same about me, yeah. yeah. But I did go from, I started off doing jonglers as the funeral director. So I did develop my, I dropped all that and became myself whilst doing jonglers. So it was possible. It was difficult, I agree. Mm. And some of those rooms like Nottingham, you know, that massive Nottingham room that was just full of stags and hens. Oh my that God. Was, yeah, that was terrifying. But in the end, I got to quite enjoy it. I got to, yeah, I got to kind of go, this is a challenge that you need to overcome. And I kind of developed a set that would work there. Yeah. I know what you which, mean. Which, which was, which was, um, in some ways completely pointless <laughs> because there are no rooms like that anymore. So I'm, I'm able to play the rooms that no longer exist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I, I know what you mean. I only did not in a month, I think, but I, uh, I felt like I've, I came off stage going, great. I haven't died in my arse. That's yeah. all I felt. <laughs> mm. Uh, but I remember doing bow and, uh, oh, yeah. that was some tough, yeah. bloke just came right up and stood right in front of the stage and was just trying to freak me out. And, uh, I laid yeah. into him and came off stage realizing <laughs> that I had laid into him and I, and I, I had worked. But then when I looked at them, I went, that guy could kill me. And his yeah, mates yeah. were all gangsters. They looked like gangsters. <clears throat> they were gangsters, that's why. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's quite incredible how someone <laughs> like you or me who are very uh, shy or not yeah. socially gifted 
can turn into a different, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a different yeah. person on stage. Suddenly you, you kind of own the room. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I kind of liked about it, learning to do that. Yeah. Um, and in some ways it stood me in good stead because no gig frightens me now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, if I can cope with that room, I can cope with most rooms, you know. Yeah. What was I saying? Oh, yeah, I did all those rooms. And then I did that huge tour with Lee Mack. So um, we did huge theatres and, and an arena. And, uh, you know, in a way, all that kind of jongler stuff stood me in good stead for that because um, it wasn't too terrifying. Yeah. No. Although Glasgow, Glasgow, was it Glasgow Empire? It was a bit, bit scary. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I'm I'm the opening act, and there's no no one on before me. They they come to see Lee Mack. I walk out, you know, and uh, and my heckle was, "Who the fuck are you, pal?" Right, <laughs> 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 oh, yeah. <laughs> but but actually, those scary ones um, that I thought were going to be tough were actually the most enjoyable. That was a great gig, Glasgow Empire and uh, Manchester Apollo. Also, I thought that would be rough, but actually they were great. Um, but there is something amazing about being capable of uh, saying to yourself, oh, well, you know, if I die here, I don't care. <laughs> so then that kind of gives you the ability to <clears throat> not die. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I still care. It's still a horrible feeling, um, dying. Um, yeah. But, uh, or I don't, in I'm... the early days, it would dis- it would destroy me. In the early days, absolutely. I'd, you know, I'd spend a week upset. And da, 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 da. Nowadays, yeah. I'm over it in 15 minutes. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah and perhaps I'm not, I'm not saying that dying is is a, is not unpleasant. What I'm saying is, you kind of go, well, there's nothing I can. Like panicking isn't going to help this. No, you're going to go. I'm going to try all the. I don't know. It's just experience, I guess. And I've, I know. All yeah, the, the less you panic, the more. Yeah, the less you panic, the more able you are to get out of it. Yeah, to turn it round. Yeah, I mean, in the early days, I would just freeze and my mouth would dry up, and you know, I I would remember forget everything I was going to say anyway, and just crumble. Yeah. You know? Nowadays, I can, yeah, nowadays I can do a whole 30 minute set without getting a laugh. (laughs) (laughs) I'd be quite happy. (laughs) I did a corporate event last year, um, where the, it, the, it, it was like a room of 300 people. And, uh, within about eight minutes, um, about 280 of them had left. (laughs) (laughs) they just got up and walked out yeah (laughs) it was horrific yeah horrible but i did my time (laughs) (laughs) the war stories yeah uh Uh, uh, thing is comics laugh at them much more than the general public oh oh absolutely i mean that's all we talk about when we meet up yeah the shit gigs um So how how do you uh, you you were actually teaching? Uh, this is how I got back in contact with you, sir. So yeah, Ellen O'Reilly. Ellen, Ellen, yeah, yeah. 
I started, um, it was, I did it out of uh, anger and spite, um, really, because I got annoyed by um, seeing all the stand-up comedy courses being advertised on Facebook by people that couldn't get booked, being taught by people that couldn't get booked in a decent club to save their lives. And it's been annoying me for years. And then um, I saw, you know, another new one starting up by somebody that you know, couldn't do five minutes. And I just thought, this is ridiculous. I'm, I'm, I'm. And so I um, spoke with the comedy store and said, look, I could teach. I could te- do this. And I had a chat with Don and uh, we sorted it out. And I started doing um, classes for, I originally started doing classes for improvers for people that were doing five minutes of whatever already and uh, wanted to progress. Because it's dead easy to see. When you see somebody doing an open spot, uh, it's easy. It's not so easy to see it in yourself, but when you look at somebody, you can see what they're doing wrong. Mm. Um, and I thought I could teach this. and But there wasn't really enough demand for that. So I started to do total beginners, people that have never been on stage. And uh, I've done quite a few courses. Um, and uh, obviously all gone now. Uh, <laughs> uh, I uh, I sort of enjoy it. I dread it. I dread it every every week. Oh God, I've got to go teach these people now. Mm. Um, and but I, by the end of it, I've always really enjoyed it. It's great. Uh, it's kind of like therapy. Yeah, it's like it's therapy. Good. Yeah, it's well not for not for me, but for them. Well, and yeah. for me, I suppose. But you know, it's it's kind of. Therapy without the compassion. <laughs> mm. They tell you that you're their problems and you laugh at them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it's quite, um, I've, I've done it a bit by video. People send me their sets and uh, I go through it and go, right, this, this doesn't fit together, that joke doesn't work, those words are for the wrong way around you know mm. and you know the whole it's it's easy to look at it in someone else i think and see what's wrong because when i first started i thought well what, what do i know i can't teach them anything mm. i don't know anything but uh once you start you realize that you know a lot um, yeah i remember i remember years and years ago uh, being an open spot going on stage and dying uh and then hanging around to watch the headline act, who was somebody called Bert Tyler Moore. You might not remember him. It's a long time ago. He was a school teacher. I think he was a gay school teacher. And he went on, did 20 minutes, stormed it. And I thought, what does he know that I don't know? (laughs) What does he know? And uh, I still couldn't tell you in words what it is I know now that I didn't know then. But... uh, I can definitely see it when it's wrong. Yeah. 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 So, so, I mean, Ellen's really good. I really like. Yeah, she is really good. Yeah. 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 She was good straight away. Some people are good straight away. And uh, some people you just look at and you go, no, never in a million years are you going to do stand-up. The weird thing I found about teaching was that because I, like every other comic, I was going, oh, bloody hell, teachers chucking all these new acts onto the circuit. We don't need it. Uh, Actually, most of them don't want to be stand-up comedians. There's only about, I, I, don't, I normally do groups of about 16 
at most one or two of them actually want to do stand-up comedy. They're mostly doing it for confidence reasons, you know, or or they're doing it as an experience, like you do a parachute jump. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. Those people that do parachute jumps don't want to become parachutists. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Professional parachutists. <laughs> exactly. Or they've got... Or they've got to do presentations at work or, yeah. or a best man speech or all of that. They're mm. doing it as a kind of one-off thing. They're not doing it to become stand-up comedians. Mm. And also, once they realise the amount of work that's involved in becoming a full-time stand-up comedian, they don't want to know. You know, mm. the, the years you've got to do it for nothing for and all that stuff. You're travelling, you know, yeah. the, divor- yeah. the divorces, that sort of thing. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm not chucking out loads of new acts at all. Yeah, I mean most. Uh, Ellen could be one, of course. Yeah, she really, yeah. she's really into it. And but also, she was all, also already used to being on stage. Yeah, she's a musician, so that's a big part of it. Uh, anyway, look, it's good chatting. Um, God knows what you're going to do with this. It's more of a drug rehab uh, podcast than a comedy podcast. <laughs> I don't uh, know how we got into all that. Oh well, I know. Oh, be, uh, it's part of your story. It's part yeah, of yeah. Story. yeah, yeah. It's a long time ago. I've, I've been. Uh, I live a completely different life. I am totally sober and have been for many, many years. I don't take any drugs at all. Mm. Not alcohol. Nothing. Um, which is almost as weird as you know. Being a heroin addict, um, it's certainly more frowned upon by the general public. Right. <laughs> what? You don't drink? <laughs> yeah. Because my biggest thing, my my biggest problem with 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 cleaning up was the fact that I just couldn't envisage a life without drugs. I just mm. couldn't think that it would be possible, or that I would like it, or mm. yeah. And also, I'd never met anyone that had cleaned up. We were talking a long time ago. They're, they're more prevalent now. Mm-hmm. But I've never met a heroin addict that wasn't a heroin addict anymore that that seemed happy. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I'd met I'd met some that were suffering from her, horrendous depression, or had become born again Christians, or oh. you know some some weirdness. But I'd never met one that just had a normal life and was happy about it. Yeah, yeah. And I am one of those people. I say normal life, you know, normalish life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's quite inspiring actually. For someone who is thinking, how am I going to live with a heroin or with a whatever? Yeah, yeah. And it's not just heroin, it's anything, you know, giving up anything. Yeah. And you know what's, I think the worst thing, maybe heroin probably is the worst thing, but if, if society. I think alcohol is much worse than heroin, personally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but when a whole society is saying it's quite normal to get absolutely pissed yeah, on a yeah, regular yeah. basis, that's very when hard. To... Yeah, when your idea is, God, I can't remember what happened last night. It must have been great. That's yeah. something wrong there. Have you ever thought about doing cancelling? No, because drug addicts are a nightmare to be with. <laughs> 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 They're horrible people. They're yeah. so deluded and, you know, you can't get through to them. It's tough. Yeah. You need, um, you need a, you need a, somewhere breaking them down. They're, uh, they're a nightmare. Wow. No, I wouldn't, I've not got the patience for them, for them. Yeah. 
No. There was one, there was this, there was this, there was this old lady I was in rehab with, um, who insisted that she was there by mistake. We used to do this group counseling. She was insisting she was there by mistake, but her husband had said they were going out for lunch and he dropped her off there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> this residential rehab. And, uh, and she was denying that she had a drink problem for, for weeks. This went on. And, yeah. uh, and then eventually, uh, somebody came in from the, uh, they said, right, we've been to your house and, um, we found sort of 170 empty bottles of vodka hidden in your house. Right. And she said, yes, the lodger drinks. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so it still didn't break it down. And then at one point they brought in a medical records and go, right, we've got your medical records here. And it was, you have not got, you've barely got a liver left. <laughs> it says on here that your liver is almost non-existent. Yeah. And, uh, and she sort of finally broke down and admitted it. And, uh, and, uh, and then, you know, went through the whole program and we all realized that actually she wasn't that old. She just looked really old and she sort of, and she kind of, uh, and she ended up doing really well and, and, and ended up working there. And I went back to a reunion some years ago and she was still there as yeah. uh you know, yeah, as a counsellor and what have you. So there's, there's some, you know, heartwarming stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's an incredible amount of denial. It's wow. Denial is the big problem, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's everyone else's problem, you know. Yeah. I suffered from it myself. I mean, you know, I, I always thought if I could just get enough money in drugs that everything would be okay. Uh, which I think is why a lot of, you know, super successful people, uh, get, um, get, get into recovery because, you know, they suddenly have got enough money in drugs and then they realize that they're still not happy. That and, wasn't the, problem. yeah, when you've got fame, Money, drugs, women, you've got everything you could possibly think might fix you right. and you're still incredibly miserable. Then you've got to start looking somewhere else. Right. <laughs> okay, good talking to you. Good talking to you, Mike. All right, good luck. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye bye. gone there with a very inspiring story from his life before he starts doing stand-up up to now that's a fact so uh i uh recorded some of the i recorded all of that on zoom the zoom that you use to have meetings but i also backed it up i thought i thought i was backing it up by recording my own voice on my phone using the recorder but uh i'd forgotten and wasn't aware that i had put on a wash probably an hour before we started the conversation but these washes go on for ages don't they so i listened back to my recording of my own voice and i'm talking away and it's fantastic but when i'm not talking all you can hear is from the washing machine um, yeah, so it's quite a, a, a amateur mistake there, putting a wash on before I record it. Uh, something I'm sure that's 
happened in many studios. Who knows, the Beatles might have come across the same problem when they had to wash their suits in between gigs and record a song or two. Uh, so, in the meantime, if you're uh, looking for some comedy online, I, I, I'm doing an improv comedy show with the Dublin Comedy Improv every Monday night at 9pm on Zoom. And uh, you can find the link on my page or on the Dublin Comedy Improv Facebook page. Uh, I'm also putting out little sketches every now and then. I'm sure you might find them on my Instagram or my Facebook or my Twitter. And that's how I'm keeping myself busy, doing a bit of sketches, improv, podcast, running. Love the running. Slightly addicted to running. Little 5K runs, nothing too too much. And, uh, yeah, life goes on. Oobla dee, oobla da. Well, until next week, thank you for listening, and tally hell! Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today.